0: Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bortoletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of FNS On Air. This month we're discussing Volume 118, Issue Number 4, or as you all may know it, the October
2: Issue. Kurt and Eve, it's good to be back with all of you. How are you?
3: It's great to be back. Good morning, everyone.
2: I'm well, Pietro. Thank you very much. I hope you're well, too. Special shout
1: out to our executive producer, Dr. Michael Simone, who's behind the scenes, but here with us as well. Michael, how are you
3: doing? Well, great to see everybody.
1: I wanted to start off by mentioning how wonderful it's been to run into people who listen to our podcast physicians, nurses, embryologists, and even trainees. And this month, I want to give a special shout out to my nurse Carol Lesser from Boston IVF, who is a loyal listener and fan of the podcast.
3: I always love that as well. And I want to give a shout out to Mark Leanderis, who texted after the live from ESHRA episode. Always really nice to hear from colleagues and friends around the country. And we're also going to be doing live from ASRM. So please stop by the Fertility and Sterility booth in the exhibit hall, and we look forward to hearing all about your research.
2: And of course, for all the fellows that tell me they enjoy digesting fertility this way, please remember the old timer says you still have to read the
1: journal. Kurt, you're doing the heavy lifting again this month with the seminal contribution. What do you have for us?
2: Thanks, Pietro. I'm real pleased with seminal contribution this month. It's uh, not exactly all REI, but this, I think, really is a seminal contribution to our understanding. And I'm talking about a paper titled Natural History of Fibroids in Pregnancy, National Institute of Child Health and Development Fetal Growth Studies, the Singleton Cohort. So as described by the title, this represents a very large prospective cohort funded by the NIH to evaluate the natural history of fibroids. Interestingly, I thought we all knew that already, but when you do studies like this, it really does um, bring new things to bear, new understandings, and it represents a tremendous amount of work to accomplish something like this. So thank you to Susanna Mitro, who is the first author, and Catherine Grants, who is the senior author of this paper. So, I mean, the idea of the study is is obvious to describe the natural history of fibroids in pregnancy, and then see if there's some associations um, based on race, uh, the size of the fibroids, um, and many other questions that you might have. And this was, um, you know, no simple task. This is um, looking at more than 2,770 subjects, uh, each of which had six ultrasounds in the course of pregnancy, the first one around 10 to 13 weeks. So the goal really was to identify how many people had fibroids, the size of the fibroids, and then what happened during the course of the pregnancy. So the findings are, are you know, pretty straightforward. Found out that uh, basically around 11% of people actually had fibroids in their pregnancy. The number was slightly higher in African-Americans at 14% compared to whites and Asians, which was around 9%. The fibroids, to help understand what I'm saying here, are categorized into small, medium, and large. You can look at the definitions to see what they are. Then they basically identified those three largest fibroids across the pregnancy over the time, and they found out that overall, fibroids were actually decreasing during pregnancy, not increasing, as I had uninformedly thought myself. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. The small fibroids got a tad bigger, whereas the medium and large fibroids were decreasing by around 1% to 2% per month. Now, there were some racial differences. It seemed to be that, as I mentioned, the fibroids are a little bit more prevalent in African-American. That's confirming what I think we already know. Um, But uh, some of the other differences were, were quite intriguing. So, in general, when you have a large population like this, you can actually find a number of associations. And they actually found that what I just described, which is the main uh, finding of the paper, that fibres actually are decreasing over time, did vary a little bit by race. It also varied by ethnicity. It also varied by whether you were primogravid or gravid, and also whether you had a history of miscarriage. But most of these findings were if you will, epidemiologically significant, and it's hard to draw direct comparisons to a particular patient. Um, I hope you all will take a look at the figure one, which um, I think summarizes a lot of the data. Uh, I like figure one. It's something called a spaghetti plot, which has um, kind of an uh, identification of each patient. And you look at it and there's just huge variation individually. Some people starting with large fibroids and dramatically decreasing, other people staying about the same, others, um, you know, the lines go all over the place. But mathematically, you can then draw the, um, just like a regression line, you know, what is the line that best represents that? uh, And what's the... um, the variation around that line. And then you can draw those conclusions that I just mentioned. So the main conclusion of this paper really is that fibroids do have uh, individual natural history, but overall fibroids are actually decreasing in pregnancy rather than increasing in pregnancy. So there's still a lot to tell in this paper about what the mechanism is, how this actually correlates with symptoms and whether this is racially associated or whether it perhaps is something like genetically associated because there's a great body of literature uh, about the the genetics for people that have fibroids, but also the genetic mutations within the fibroids. So this was really meant to be kind of an overview study for you just to see the general findings, um, understand that some of these really large studies uh, are progressing, and we'll be able to ask many more questions like this. As I've said in this podcast before, let the data flow over you. There's no clinically take-home message here. Of course, patients still have to have individual counseling about their fibroids, but the age-old adage that fibroids will grow, disrupt a pregnancy, become symptomatic, really is probably anecdote based on this large prospective study. While we can still learn about fibroids in general, I don't think we have to be as worried about them as we were before. Uh, even Pietro, you have any kind of overall thoughts on you know a big undertaking like this?
3: Yeah. First, I really want to commend the authors. I think it's It's almost so simple. Why hasn't anyone done this before? And so I think in that sense, I was really, I was really impressed with the work that they did. I do think that sometimes I hear patients coming in and they say, I was recommended to have my fibroids out before pregnancy because of the issues that the fibroid may cause during pregnancy And I think if the fibroid is not symptomatic, if you're not symptomatic from the fibroid prior to conception, I'm not certain that I would recommend myomectomy for that particular indication of the fear of what that fibroid may do during pregnancy, especially those fibroids that are like five, six centimeters and intramural and not impinging on the uterine cavity. I guess there's some clinical
2: information I could take out of this. Um, It does suggest African-American women have the greatest decrease. I'm not sure that's because they had the greatest size to begin with. Um, But it also does suggest a natural history that I don't think I appreciated before. So it looks like the fibroids get a little bit larger in the first trimester, about half get larger in the second trimester, but most of the decrease is actually in the third trimester. Now, PHR is going to say, well, Kirk, doesn't that mean that the measurements were harder because in the third trimester the fibroids were harder to measure and the fetus was in the way, perhaps, but um, but the great idea here is that they are actually decreasing at the time of delivery in the third trimester, not actually increasing further or exponentially. Well, there is one
1: line buried in the results section that talks about the
2: number of visualized fibroids
1: increased for women who had anterior fibroids, which I think does speak to that point of just proximity to the probe and the ability to visualize anterior wall fibroids during pregnancy with an expanding uterus. There's one more interesting point that's in the results section, just from a counseling perspective, that would be important to highlight is where are most fibroids in women who are able to achieve a conception and have five to six ultrasounds during the course of their pregnancy. The vast majority of them were located anteriorly. The second most common site was posterior. The smallest percentage were lateral wall, fundal, subserosal, and only one to 4% were submucosal.
2: Yeah, that's a great idea about selection bias, if you will, as Pietro is pointing out, that perhaps the people with submucosal fibroids in this cohort, we see them more often in our practice than maybe the general OBGYN. So that might be just a intrinsic selection bias. So again, let like this data flow over you. there's a lot to learn here. There's a lot of unanswered questions. It really doesn't give us the mechanisms. Um, there's a wonderful reflection by uh, Jessica Settler, goes into some of the possible mechanisms for this. Hypothesis driving for sure. But at this point, we just simply don't know. So Kurt, while not a
1: seminal contribution, your next article does discuss semen quality. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this andrology article of this
2: month? Yeah, thanks again, Pietro. So this, I think, is another intriguing article, which is um, best interpreted from a um, very high level rather than a specific level. This article, Semen Quality and Reproductive Hormones in Sons of Subfertile Couples, a Cohort Study. The first author is Lynn Arned and senior author Cecilia Ramlu hansen and my apologies for the pronunciations. I, I should know your names by now. But this paper is a cohort um, out of Denmark, and the goal, which is, I think, a very laudable one, is to study the association between fertility problems with couples, and that was assessed in two ways, by either time to pregnancy or by using um, medically-assisted reproduction, and then the outcome, particularly in this case of boys, who now are men and can obtain semen analyses to see if the semen analyses of these offspring correlate with the fertility parameters of their parents. So it's a total of more than a thousand men in this fetal programming and semen quality cohort, great name, by the way, and a sub-cohort of the Danish National Birth Cohort. And we're talking about um, men from 2017 to 2019, so it's relatively contemporary. So the findings, again, are pretty easy to interpret and straightforward. They found out the semen characteristics, and what by that they mean the semen volume, the semen concentration, the total sperm count. The sperm motility and the morphology are basically the same, whether parents of those um, sons had a long time to pregnancy compared to a short time to pregnancy, whether their parents used medically-assisted reproductive technologies. Uh, And by the way, they did have a control group of couples that conceived unintended, so theoretically without any um, problem with fertility. In the paper, there are more specifics about how much these uh, parameters varied. You can certainly look at those. But the main point is this is reassuring data. So what does one do with a paper like this? I think when you have a large longitudinal cohort study that shows, in this case, very well done and specific outcome, what do you make of this? So I think there's two types of these large cohort studies. One is you find evidence that there's something there, and then you start questioning, did I really do the study right, and is that study finding true? Whereas the other is the converse, which is this fork in the road, which is you find a large cohort study that's reassuring, and then your thought process goes to, wait a minute, should I be really be assured, or did they actually miss something? So in this case, it's kind of interesting, and I want to hear what Pietro's and Eve's take is, because this does contradict a prior study. There's another study also out of um, Northern Europe that showed that in boys who were conceived with their father having the need for ICSI did have a lower sperm count. And in that paper, they actually went back and said, we also found changes in FSH and inhibin B and proposed that perhaps there was a problem in spermatogenesis. This study doesn't find that. This study says, I have a larger group of people. I don't find any difference in their hormones. And I can cut it by time to pregnancy, use of ART, compared to normal controls, compared to infertile controls without ART. And I don't see a big difference. So what do you do with this? What the prior study um, is always criticized in the contemporary study. That's what you do in a discussion, right? And they said that the prior study was obviously flawed because it was too small and not contemporary. We're talking about people that conceived with IVF in the 80s, whereas this one is using more modern fertility treatment. Um, So I guess you could flip it and say this study is done on contemporary IVF, but ICSI is now widely used and not only used for male factor, and they didn't look specifically at people with ICSI compared to non-ICSI, they looked at IVF in general. So it's hard to really make a distinction. So I don't know whether to be completely reassured by this study, intrigued by it, or worried by it. What do you guys
3: think? Well, so Kurt, that was exactly my thought with this study. I think that they had a ripe opportunity to look at those couples that utilized ICSI for male factor infertility versus those couples that did not. And with so many fertility clinics using 100% ICSI, I think it muddies the water between restricting the analysis to those couples that just have male factor infertility. And so I think in one sense, like I kind of agree with you that it's too small, too large, and we may need a study that's just right. The other thing that pops into my mind is what we had talked about with the World Health Organization and the data on why variations in semen quality globally. And so is, is this restricted to one region? Is this not going to be applicable in other regions? I don't know, because if we know that certain countries have higher semen analysis parameters overall, now what do you make with all of these data? How do you interpret that?
1: I think one of the frustrating things with some of this data, while I love that it's coming out, and I think we're going to start to see a a huge amount of it over the coming years as we really mature our ability to collect this data, we're entering an era where over 8 million IVF children have been born worldwide, is that we're always going to be lagging by about 18 years. So we're looking at pregnancies that were conceived in the late 90s, early 2000s. This is largely fresh transfers, pre-vitrification, uh, day three, very different culture media, very different incubation settings, very different technique for ICSI. I have to imagine that we've progressed in the last 20 years on how we do it and how good we are at doing it. Um, but I think it's the best we have. And while it may be um, slightly bigger than the previous study, that which was still small, I like when things conflict because it actually makes people want to do the third study, the fourth study, and really build the numbers and be able to come up with something that arrives a little bit closer to what we think is the truth. Because... Patients are asking about this. We're entering the era where I have seen during my time at Cornell, patients who were conceived at the Jones Institute in Virginia, come back and need to do ART for themselves or have an interest in ART. And they've asked, is this related to my father or my mother having to have used ART, the fact that I now can't conceive or having trouble. So I'm glad this stuff is coming out
2: and I'm glad that FNS is publishing it, despite it being small and contradictory. Yeah, so let's, I want to go back to the conclusions of this paper just to end this conversation, because sometimes I'm very general in this podcast, but sometimes I really do want to be very specific. So in this paper, I don't want you to be fooled by the the title, Semen Quality and Reproductive Hormones in Sons of Subfertile Couples. Um, So therefore, that without me reading the paper, thinks, well, wait a minute. They're looking at this question if a man has infertility will it be passed on to his son and specifically if somebody if a man needs ICSI will his son need ICSI for the same reasons this study doesn't answer that and I'm not commenting badly on the study i mean their their overall conclusion is 100% correct we found no major difference in semen quality or reproductive hormones in sons conceived by subfertile couples or with the use of medical-assisted reproduction. That's true. Just be careful about over-extrapolating this findings to, for example, the guy that has 1 million sperm with no obvious explanation that may have microgenetic mutations and whether he's passing that on to his son or not. That's simply not the question addressed in the study. So, I'm really reassured by this this kind of Danish national study. It's tremendous to show us that ART doesn't seem to have a complication um, in terms of male offspring and their semen analysis. But I think we were thinking it might have answered a different question. And I just want to be careful in your interpretation.
1: Let's pivot a little bit and go back to the eggs. We've spent a little bit of time talking about seminal contributions and sperm, but let's talk about oocyte maturity for a moment. So we're all very familiar with our routine evaluation of an oocyte's nuclear maturity upon retrieval. It's when we assign labels such as GV, M1, and M2 based on oocyte morphology. M2 oocytes are able to be fertilized, whereas GVs and M1s require a certain amount of laboratory manipulation, usually in the form of IVM, to yield oocytes with meaningful reproductive potential. When a cohort of oocytes is retrieved and results in a lower than expected oocyte maturity ratio, we're often left with gaps in our ability to explain to patients why this happened and what this means from a clinical outcomes perspective, which is where this study from Emily Kapper comes in. Dr. Kapper, along with senior authors Amy Sparks and Brad Van Voorhees from Iowa, sought to answer this question for us by reviewing data from patients undergoing autologous oocyte cycles between 2016 and 2018 at Iowa. At their center, two lead ovarian follicles of at least 18 millimeters in mean diameter are required for ovulatory trigger and patients received either single or dual trigger. Once retrieved, these oocytes were assessed for maturity at the time of retrieval. And then again, six hours later in a subset of patients undergoing ICSI by a team of five trained embryologists. Their primary objective was to determine if the oocyte maturity ratio is a predictor of live birth for patients undergoing their first fresh or frozen transfer from this specific retrieval cycle. Of the 1,400 cycles included, 22,000 oocytes were retrieved, resulting in almost 13,000 embryos. After adjusting for age, PGT, and the number of embryos transferred using a generalized estimating equation, they found that a low oocyte maturity ratio defined as less than 57% was associated with a decreased live birth rate, with an Adjusted odds ratio of 0.41. Of note, that 57% was arrived by looking at one standard deviation below the median of this cohort. As a secondary outcome, they sought to examine clinical factors associated with oocyte maturity. Women with anovulation had reduced oocyte maturity ratio compared to those without, and women with DOR had increased oocyte maturity ratios. The last and perhaps most interesting and helpful finding from a counseling perspective was that only a third of cycles classified as having below average maturity in their first cycle were found to be below average in the second cycle. This means that REIs made the right modifications to improve maturity, be it by pushing to bigger sizes or modifying their trigger strategy. One thing I wish that the authors had done for us was show that in patients with subsequent cycles whose oocyte maturity improved, did their odds of live birth also improve? And if so, what were the interventions that took place to improve that maturity? Is it longer stem, different trigger, different size of trigger? But overall, I think this is a really nice paper from a counseling perspective and really makes me focus again on oocyte maturity ratio, which is something that doesn't, I think, immediately pop into my mind clinically when looking at this. But I think patients ask, particularly when they've cycled once, twice, or three times, why is my maturity different from cycle to cycle? Eve, Kurt, what are your thoughts on this article?
3: I think, again, this is something after being in practice for a long time now that was pretty intuitive to me that I always look at the number of eggs that are retrieved, the percent of those that are mature, the percent fertilize, and then again, the blastocyst development rate. Those are the metrics that I use when I dive in and look at a failed IVF cycle and always kind of think about what can I do in order to enhance that first part. We know that because there's a tremendous amount of attrition. The higher number of eggs you start out with and the higher number of mature eggs you start out with, overall, the cycle is going to be improved. So to me, I I liked it. I think it was very confirmatory for what I see in my own clinical practice and think it was just a really nice, I agree, a nice counseling nugget. And I think a nice way, perhaps for those clinicians that are not thinking about this in that way to help you to fine tune your changes that you make to your stimulation protocol
2: again this is good data Um, you know getting normative information for lack of better word is always helpful to sometimes as eve suggested look back at a person's cycle and say are they off the norm in one way or another did you get a very good cycle did you get a very bad cycle but uh you know again it's just something you're not going to use on a day-to-day basis it's more like filling in gaps of our knowledge which is wonderful and i'm pleased it's it's published Eve, I have to tell you,
1: I'm a little bit jealous that this next article was assigned to you for presenting. Tell us a little bit more about pregnancy outcomes after frozen thawed embryo transfer using letrozole ovulation induction.
3: Thanks, Pietro. I also really enjoyed this because I know this has come up a bunch on the podcast and it comes up a bunch in my own clinical practice in terms of best protocol for frozen embryo transfer. Um, and as you know, we have uh, views and reviews coming out in November. And the reason I say you know, because Pietro is one of the authors, and that views and reviews looks at all components of the embryo transfer, the who, what, where, when, why, how, and doesn't matter, looking at not just the embryo transfer itself, but the live birth outcomes. This paper was by godawala et al., And the objective of this study was to evaluate and compare pregnancy outcomes between letrozole ovulation induction, natural and programmed frozen embryo transfer cycles. This was a retrospective cohort study that was carried out in a single university-affiliated infertility practice. The primary outcome was ongoing pregnancy or live birth rate, and the secondary outcome was clinical pregnancy, and they also looked at clinical loss rate. Endometrial preparation was performed in a program cycle, natural cycle, or letrozole ovulation induction cycle according to physician preference. So each physician got to choose their own protocol. And according to patient ovulatory status, the number of embryos transferred was in accordance with ASRM guidance. Their program cycles used Lupron down regulation followed by oral or transdermal estradiol, and then 75 milligrams of PIO when the lining was at least 7 millimeters. Latrazole was given cycle days 3 through 7 to promote follicular recruitment, and then starting on day 10, patients were monitored daily for the onset of the LH surge, so they were actually brought into the clinic, and blood levels were measured along with ultrasound. Two days after the LH surge, luteal supplementation with crinone was begun, and embryo transfer was performed six days after the LH surge. The natural cycle followed that exact same protocol, but without the letrozole administration. And they had a total of 3,148 FET cycles from patients ages 18 to 45 who transferred autologous blastocysts. Multivariate regression was used to assess the association between FET protocol and various pregnancy outcomes while adjusting for known covariates that may impact the ongoing pregnancy rate. To account for participants who contributed multiple cycles, they did a general estimating equation. And then a subgroup analysis was performed examining outcomes according to ovulatory status, and was also performed to assess the performance of each FET protocol within each population of patients. So, more on this later, but there were some pretty significant differences between groups, but I wanted to give a little bit of foreshadowing on the limitations before we discuss the results. So, I would summarize, and I would say the major three findings of this paper are as follows. One, The ovulatory cycles outperformed the program cycles. There was a higher ongoing pregnancy and live birth rate in the letrozole FET group and natural cycle FET group, and that was 63.6% and 59.9% compared to the programmed FET group, who still had a great pregnancy rate, but it was lower at 55.7%. The second is that the programmed FET group had the highest clinical loss rate of the three groups. And the third was they analyzed outcomes by ovulatory status, and they found higher rates of ongoing pregnancy rate and live birth rate among ovulatory women taking letrozole for an FET compared to programmed FETs, but comparable rates in in anovulatory women. So I think this begs the question, like should we all move to ovulatory cycles? And as I alluded before, the groups were not well matched. And I think that this may have greatly influenced the findings. And I think the biggest difference between groups were that the letrozole and natural cycle groups had a higher percentage of patients with male factor. So arguably, good prognosis patients that were disproportionately included in those groups. The program cycle on the whole had more embryos transferred per transfer and a higher number of previously failed cycles. And so I think that that higher number of embryos per transfer, if you're following ASRM guidelines, really shows that that's a poor prognosis patient. So you could perhaps use that as a, as a proxy for that. And I think it's entirely possible that these differences account for the difference in success rates. And so I think it really begs the question, what are the points that we can take home from this study? And I think that probably the best point here is that a letrozole-stimulated cycle should be considered in an anovulatory patient undergoing an FET. I think that the knee-jerk reaction for so many is, oh, you don't get periods, you're anovulatory, let's put you on a program cycle. And so I think this paper really says like, aha, we have an alternative for that, and the efficacy is actually quite good. And I do think that while we need to consider that it's less burdensome to do a letrozole or a natural cycle from a medication standpoint... I think a lot of the devil is in the details of how you do that natural cycle. So in this article, they did daily monitoring after day 10. I think that takes away a lot of the beauty of a natural cycle in that that daily monitoring can be expensive and burdensome for both the patient and the clinic staff. And I know for larger programs, it's not as much of an issue having a plan for an embryo transfer seven days per week but I also think that it may lead to too many embryo transfers on a given day, and this can cause an additional burden to the lab. And this is something we definitely run into in our practice. And there's not a lot that we have found that we can do to better control it. But listeners, if you have any suggestions, send them my way. And I think that the other glaring point from the study is that outcome data was missing. Were there differences in, in term deliveries, preeclampsia? And I think, again, before we jump into universally doing natural cycles or stimulated cycles for all, I really want to see the outcome of the NAPRO RCT, which is still ongoing. So Kurt, Pietro, what do you think?
2: So this is obviously a, a great study and it gives us incremental information. There's still both specifically and generally, so much we need to learn, Eve. I mean, um, we as a field tend to jump onto a bandwagon and, you know, natural is better, but now, wait a minute, it's hard to do that. So we need to find a way to make natural programmed. I, I know I'm using these words interchangeably, but it's really, we don't know yet what's best and we're still letting our practice dictate what we think is okay, so again, this is really good information, um, but I don't think we have an answer yet. And I'm really not sure what to tell you about your clinical practice because there really is a balance between the logistics of your practice, but really trying to figure out what's best for a woman, which I, well, I ultimately think should trump.
3: Yeah. And I think, um, I think it's really just hard because so many centers have different protocols for natural cycle FETs. I've spoken with some of my colleagues do have patients monitor an LH surge at home using urinary LH kits, call the clinic, come in six days later for a transfer. And in our center, we actually measure progesterone levels and we time the embryo transfer based on the specific rise in progesterone for each patient. And it mostly correlates to LH plus six, but there are a couple instances where it doesn't. And we have noticed that those patients get pregnant. And so we're similarly looking at our data and, and hoping to publish that. So more on that later. But I think the devil really is in the details of how do you do a natural cycle FET and how do you maintain high quality in your laboratory so that you're not doing 20 embryo transfers on one day and three the next day? Like, Is there a better way to help manage those cycles?
2: Couldn't agree more, But the but the problem is what's the more important question, how to make your practice work or to find out actually what's better? Because I think in REI, we tend to overcomplicate things. You know, a natural cycle is a natural cycle. People have been getting pregnant for millions of years, you know, um, without letrozole and and without the letrozole values. So I just happen to think we found what's natural versus how do we affect our daily practice in a meaningful way.
3: Yeah, I think the biggest question that remains to be answered, though, it's not so much natural, it's corpus luteum, right? Yeah. Like how much so people have been getting pregnant for millions of years, but they've all had corpus luteum prior to 1978 when Louise Brown was born. So I think that we have created this artificial issue of not having a corpus luteum at the time of doing a frozen embryo transfer. So frozen embryo transfers are relatively new Ish procedure, and we've created a new ish problem of suppressing the corpus luteum formation. And so, is it time to go back to what has worked for millions of years? So, I'm just going to take the opposite point from you and argue that maybe going backwards. And maybe restoring that, you know, so-called natural state may actually be uh, risk mitigating. And so I think that more data are emerging, and I'm going to have Pietro comment a little bit on here because this is really what I had asked you to write about in that Views and Reviews.
1: I think there's so much to unpack with this specific issue, and I'm going to just double down on the plug for Eve's views and reviews that's going to talk through every single step of the frozen embryo transfer selection, who performs it. And then we have an article in there that kind of anchors the series that really talks about safety and dives into the importance of a corpus luteum, the importance of other things that the ogre is producing beyond VEGF and relaxin, and really focuses in on how to maximize risk reduction. And I think generating a corpus luteum in everyone is going to afford a very small degree of risk reduction, but really finding the patients who stand to benefit the most the anovulatory patients, the patients with pre existing risk factors, the patients who are coming into your clinic smelling like they're going to develop preeclampsia or growth restriction. Those are the patients who may, and I think Kurt always irons this point home, if the data bears out in a prospective, randomized fashion that this is the case, those are patients who generating a corpus luteum may provide a real, substantial, meaningful benefit. So I think people often forget that we're able to allow someone to recruit a follicle spontaneously or induce a follicle with letrozole or clomid, but we can still control the timing of ovulation and not allow the patient to ovulate spontaneously, but use ovulatory trigger, or use an ovidril, HCG, um, to really help us space out these cases in our lab so that we don't overwhelm the lab, but still are able to exploit the benefits of having a corpus luteum present. Um, I think that potentially is a way forward in a way to, in small practices and practices that don't perform transfers on weekends or batching, um, to really reap the benefits of this. Again, if the data bears out that this is a risk-reducing strategy for a specific patient subgroup, because I don't think it's a risk-reducing strategy for all patients. I think you need that second hit. You need that pre-existing risk factor, I
2: think. So let's go back big picture, Pietro, because this is kind of fun. Think about this. You know, in our generation, we've gone from learning how to do IVF to the wonders of vitrification and allowing a frozen embryo transfer. We were a little bit simplistic in thinking all you needed to do was manage estrogen and progesterone. And now we've realized, hey, you know, that wasn't exactly 100% right. We need a corpus luteum. But I bet we're also going to find in the future that you know, a a induced corpus luteum might actually might not be the same as a normal or a natural corpus luteum. So, it's really nice to see this incremental learning process in the scientific yeah, or, process.
3: I was going to say, or even an HCG induced corpus luteum as opposed to a natural corpus luteum. Right. Like, are there differences in? We know that HCG, not to totally geek out, but each the LH surge that's prompted from HCG. Is different than the LH surge that happens spontaneously. And so I I think that there probably are these subtleties that we're just beginning to uncover at this point in time. And I, I do think that this is a growing area that I'm excited to learn more about.
2: But think of the wonders that we're just presented here. So hopefully we have a lot of people that are now going to incrementally better their practice for the care of the women today. And hopefully we've induced a whole bunch of people who are going to look at this new fertile area for research to figure this out so we can learn more in the future. So that is what I want to see published in Fertility and Sterility.
3: Excellent. And so well said as always, Kurt.
1: Well, let's take a pivot and talk about something that we've been talking about as a field now for a while, the endometrial receptivity assay. So there's a nice retrospective article in this month's FNS entitled The Use of ERA tests to guide personalized embryo transfer after a failed transfer attempt was associated with a lower cumulative and per-transfer live birth rate during donor and autologous cycles. Everyone listening is familiar with the paradigm that a receptive endometrium plays an important role in achieving implantation of Uplay blastocysts that will go on to achieve live birth. Unfortunately, somewhere between 55 to 65% of euploid transfers result in live birth, leaving us wondering what happened to the other 35 to 45%. The ERA test, which uses a transcriptomic signature for dating endometrial receptivity based on 238 genes was developed to inform the optimal timing of embryo and endometrial synchronization and hopefully improve euploid embryo implantation. However, over the last handful of years, we've seen both retrospective and prospective randomized data that has significantly called into question the utility of this test for not only an unselected infertile population, but even those with recurrent implantation failure. The authors of this month's paper sought to add to this growing body of data by reporting on cumulative live birth rates in both autologous and donor cycles, which are not routinely reported on. They reviewed data from the EVRMA centers in Spain for patients who had had one previous failed embryo transfer, who underwent personalized embryo transfer with ERA-guided timing, versus standard fresh or frozen transfer with either autologous or donor oocytes. Their main outcomes were live birth per embryo transfer and cumulative live birth rate. In total, they had 3,200 autologous cycles and 2,100 donated cycles available for analysis. They found worse live birth rate per embryo transfer and cumulative live birth rate in cycles timed by the ERA, compared to fresh and frozen e in a cohort of women with a previous failed embryo transfer. This is true not only for autologous cycles, but also donor cycles. The explanations for this finding are varied, but include that simply adjusting the timing of progesterone may not be enough or may not be the whole story. It's possible that specific routes of progesterone, dosage of progesterone, and even duration of estradiol exposure before the initiation of progesterone may all be important confounders here, that warrants some attention beyond just simply focusing on timing of transfer. For now, I think the data against ERA as first line or even second line after failed transfers is mounting. This paper suggests that in both autologous and donor cycles with or without PGT, the ERA did not add any value, but in fact is associated with worse live birth per embryo transfer and cumulative life birth rates. Rather than more data against the ERA, I'd love to see a novel approach to this question that involves non invasive monitoring of the endometrium during the transfer cycle so that you could really detect a receptive endometrium and guide transfer timing during that cycle. I'd also love some more data looking at how we can modify dosing and route of progesterone delivery to improve implantation beyond just simply varying the duration of progesterone exposure. Kurt, Eve, I know we've talked about ERA before on this podcast, but could you share with us a little bit about how ERA fits into your? your practice, be it as a first-line test, second-line test, or a never test?
3: So, I think a really important point to highlight is that the authors of this paper are actually some of the developers of the ERA test. So, I really want to commend them on publishing these data because I think it's somewhat of the nail in the coffin, or as elegantly stated by the authors of the reflection, is this the end of an era? So I don't, I never say never, because maybe there are a few patients here and there where I've performed an ERA and it's changed the way that I've practiced, but I I have to say it's probably a once a year phenomenon. Um, I do find that I spend a lot of time talking with patients about the data. I think that the other really important point, and I would encourage everybody to read the reflection because it makes some very important points on what is FDA approved versus what is laboratory developed analysis and some of the nuances in what it takes to get a test to the general market. And this is a test that was, I can't remember the exact terminology as I sit here, but this is a test that was basically taken to market without strict clinical trial data. And so I think that as physicians and as experts in the field, we have to be incredibly careful when we adopt new technology into our practice. I That's been my bias on this. I can't believe how many patients I see where they do a donor egg cycle or they do a GC cycle and they're doing an ERA into a gestational carrier without ever having had a previous failure. And so I think that it's time to start focusing on other things.
2: This, this is a case history, PHR, that somebody in an MBA program is going to look back in 10 years and say, there is such a need for a test to reassure patients and clinicians about endometrial receptivity, an area that we know very little about, even the term receptivity. I don't even know what that means. Um, and because this test was so widely adopted, um, because the, the logic made so much sense, it's going to be really hard to get it out of our practice. Um, I think there's multiple studies now that said it's not helping objectively, but everyone comes back to me and says, yeah, maybe in a population it doesn't help, but in this particular patient, it might help. Or they want it for reassurity. Or I don't mean this in a bad way, the placebo effect. You feel like you're doing the best you can for your case, and that has been positive benefits. But it's an awfully invasive and expensive test for for those reasons. So I really think we have to pull it out of our practice. I'm just acknowledging it's going to be a slow pull.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would also argue that in that patient who's failed multiple cycles, that maybe the answer is just try an additional day of progesterone and see what happens. (laughs) I have a colleague who does that. And I have to say, I think maybe he's correct in doing that without doing an ERA.
2: Well, I'm going to set us up for an argument that I think we're going to have on many future episodes, which we have to be careful that we've created a disease Called recurrent implantation failure that doesn't necessarily exist. So it's like an old Monty Python sketch that I remember saying as a kid, to be famous, create a disease, and then find a cure. And that's kind of what we're doing. We're creating recurrent implantation failure, and then we have this test that can solve it. But if there's no disease, then test isn't gonna solve it. So we're, we're, we're almost at the level of Monty Python here.
3: <laughs> I love that analogy. But I do, I mean, I think we all feel the pain point when that patient has failed three euploid embryo transfers. Um, I, I think that's it's an incredibly difficult conversation to say to the patient, like, I have nothing to tell you why this is happening. I think sometimes it's easier to say, we're going to take a break. We're going to do a diagnostic cycle. There's a new test that's out there. I think every single person who's listening to this podcast can empathize. With that, But I, I think that, yes, new tests need to be developed, but I think we have shown on this podcast time and time again. And we always said that we were shown by those other than the ones who developed the test. And now we have data from the ones who actually developed the test saying, hmm, maybe it doesn't work. And we might actually be causing harm rather than helping. Like, what more do we need to stop using this test?
2: So I had, I had an old mentor, Richard Turek, when I was a fellow, we lost him in an untimely early fashion, but his favorite cliche when I was a fellow with these new tests is, Kurt, hurry up and use it before you find out it doesn't work. <laughs>
3: that, is, that is so true.
1: The analogy here, I think is just that this is kind of like home video. The ERA test to me kind of fits into that Blu-ray category. It was something that was immensely popular It filled the need that we all had for having something that was a little bit better, higher quality, more personalized. You you had access to it, but then Blu-ray disappeared. Does anyone still own Blu-ray videos? I don't think anyone does. We're all streaming, and I'm waiting for what what the next evolution is in evaluating that window of implantation. If it truly does exist, what's that next test that's going to allow us to do it in a non-invasive fashion, in a truly personalized way, but that actually improves outcomes. So I think that remains to be seen. Even we're going to pivot away from the endometrial receptivity for a second and talk about the risk of colorectal cancer after the use of fertility drugs. And again, relying on the Danes to perform the heavy lifting from an epidemiologic perspective.
3: Thanks, Pietro. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the association between the use of fertility drugs and colorectal cancer among women with infertility. The study cohort was obtained from the Danish infertility cohort and consisted of all women ages 20 to 45 living in Denmark from 1995 to 2017. And this Danish cohort contains information on all women with infertility in Denmark from 1963 to 2017. So a really ripe uh, database from which to do studies. To obtain information on colorectal cancer diagnosis, this registry was then linked to the Danish Cancer Registry And every citizen of Denmark has a unique and personalized identifier. And so you're able to get information and actually it's residents and not just citizens. Information on fertility drug use was obtained from the Danish infertility cohort, as well as the Danish national prescription registry and the Danish IVF register. So having these unique identifiers really allows the country to do robust research. All colorectal cancers were analyzed as rectal cancer and then as proximal or distal colon cancer. Covariates included the calendar year entry into the cohort, the highest education level, parity, history of inflammatory bowel disease, obesity, diabetes, and the use of hormonal contraception. And all women who had a cancer diagnosis before infertility were excluded. So in the final study cohort, there were 148,036 women, and of these, 205 women had colorectal cancer. They used Cox Proportional Hazard Regression Models to calculate the hazard ratios and the 95% confidence intervals for cancer, and this was the primary outcome, and then they looked at rectal cancer and colon cancer separately, so they lumped colorectal together, The age of the woman was used as the underlying timescale to enable comparison with women of the same age as adjusted for delayed inclusion. They also evaluated the rate of colorectal cancer on the basis of exposure to the following five specific fertility drugs, clomiphene citrate, gonadotropins, HCG, GNRH receptor modulators, and progesterone. And then among a subgroup of women with at least one prescription of any of the specific drugs, they also examined whether cumulative dose was associated with colorectal cancer. And so what did they find? In this total 148,000 women, the total follow-up time accrued in the study was 1.7 million person years of observation, and the estimated median follow-up was 11.3 years. And I want to just highlight that. The median age of inclusion was 31.1 years, and the median end age of follow up was 43.4 years, with a range of 37.5 to 49.1. The median age of diagnosis of colorectal cancer was 48.2 years. The authors found no association between ever use of any fertility drugs and the incidence of colorectal cancer. In fact, interestingly, ever use of Clomid was associated with a lower rate of colorectal cancer. In addition, the rate of rectal cancer was low after the use of gonadotropins and a sensitivity analysis was also performed, including only women who had ever been treated with fertility drugs and still found no association. I think this is a really good study and provides some incredibly reassuring data that in the 10 years after use of fertility drugs, there's no association with higher rates of colorectal cancer. And I really am very specific in saying that in the 10 years after use, because I do think that one of the limitations of this study is that the follow-up period was only 11 years and the patients were so young at the time of entry into the registry. When we compare that and we look at the average age of colon cancer diagnosis in the general population in women at 72 and 63 for rectal cancer. So while I think that these data are reassuring, I do think that they need to be interpreted with a healthy dose of caution. And I'd love to see this study published again in 10 years with more follow-up. The other point of noting is that the Danish cohort overall had a lower prevalence of obesity and only 22% of patients included in the registry have obesity. And as obesity is a risk factor for colon cancer, There could potentially be a more additive effect that we're not observing. Can the thinner white Danish population be extrapolated to a more diverse American population? And can the same conclusions be drawn? Kurt, Pietro, what do you think?
1: Can we talk about confounding by indication here for a moment? And maybe you can help us sort through this. But the key finding of this paper was that clomiphene exposure was associated with a lower risk of colorectal cancer. I have a hard time wrapping my head around five days of 100 milligrams of Clomid ever used once is going to reduce my life or at least my 10-year incidence of colorectal cancer. Is this the obesity, insulin resistance, the PCOS, the adipose tissue that drove someone to use Clomid that's reducing the risk of colorectal,
2: that is associated with the lower risk of colorectal cancer, or is it just the five days of Clomid? Great question, Pietro. That is a great example of confounding by indication that in a study, you you can get a false association because of some other confounding factor. Most people look at it like age or race or something like that. But if the people in your study are all put in there for a specific reason that ultimately is associated with colorectal cancer, that's confounding by indication. Although, might it be in reverse though, Pietro? Because don't we think that obesity um, is associated with a higher rate of cancer. So while the concept is correct, I don't know what to make of this data. I I don't know why Clomid for five days may reduce your risk of cancer or if it's a true finding or a spurious finding, which is also possible.
3: Yeah. I guess I didn't take that as the take-home point. Like I really read it at a higher, like at a more of a bird's eye view to say that overall, I think that we can be reassured. And the number of patients with 205 patients total with colorectal cancer, I think it's really hard to draw that particular conclusion for it. I do remember a while back, there was this really tragic story of a 30-year-old woman who had previously donated her oocytes twice, and then a few years later was faced with a stage four colon cancer diagnosis, and she died from colon cancer, and her mom was really active on social media, making claims that her daughter's egg donation caused her colon cancer, and she was incredibly vocal about the need for an egg donor registry to track these outcomes. I think the two questions this brings up is one, like in general, can we extrapolate these data from infertile patients to oocyte donors? And a totally separate issue, which I really don't want to get into, is do we need a registry for donors? And so I think like with regard to that first question, like can we use these data to say that oocyte donors in the 10 years after donating, um, we, we don't think that that's related to colon cancer. Kurt, what do you think?
2: A lot of questions there to unpack. I I think the the way I look at this is, again, the reason it's published is because it's a well-done study and it's reassuring to date. But I hope we all remember that the exposure time is so short that we can't say what was found today is necessarily going to be extrapolated to what's going to be found in 10 years or 20 years. I can't help but bite at the idea of a registry. I mean, listen, I I, I like data for a living. I, I think the more objective data we have, registries can only help us. They can't hurt us. But again, it has to be quality data. So it should be paramount to us all if what we're doing is safe to everybody. And this question, whether fertility itself or fertility treatment is associated with cancer is a huge question. I mean, we, we really do need to find out whether you know, is that true or not?
3: Yeah, but I, I, so I hear you on the registry, but I'm just not certain that an egg donor who goes through a couple stimulation cycles is any different than an infertile patient that goes through a couple stimulation cycles. And if anything, I think that the risk may be lower. And so while I do think that the U.S. has a need for a much more robust registry, I wouldn't start with a donor population. I would start with our own population and creating that. Like, I just don't think that, I think that the data are convincing enough from large registry studies. And I think that you probably can extrapolate those data to oocyte donors that I, I think that I feel reassured after reading this, that a colon cancer diagnosis in somebody three to four years after donating oocytes in two separate cycles was probably not the oocyte donation was probably not causative. And I think that beyond that point, beyond that 10-year mark, I don't think we can draw those conclusions, but I do think that we can reassure patients that in a few years after oocyte donation, that colon cancer is not related. And this was, I think, I empathize, it's a grieving mother, but the campaign that was launched on social media about egg donation and colon cancer i think is not backed up by this particular study which is incredibly well done and i think puts that question to rest
2: F- fabulous comment stephen we could we could do entire podcasts about the bias that we all have really it goes back to cigarette smoking and cancer i mean there was companies that hid this association for a long time, hid by status stations, hid by um, commercial enterprises. And it really was an obvious association. Now we're so numb to that, that every untoward event has to have a cause. And I'm not sure that the association with fertility treatment and cancer, if it is there, is really anywhere near the order of magnitude. So it's nice to see these reassuring studies to at least pull that out of the lexicon and not let one annex don't drive you to punishing an entire industry or a physician or something like that.
1: Well, let's take another leap away from colorectal cancer and back to the uterus, and let's end with talking about cesarean scar defects. This month's FNS has a great review and meta-analysis on the relationship between cesarean scar defects and abnormal uterine bleeding. All of us are seeing more and more C-sections being performed every year, with some Latin American countries having primary elective C-section rates of over 55%. And I say that as a primary elective C-section baby from Brazil myself. As a result, we are seeing patients with and without infertility present with a host of symptoms as a result of these cesarean scar defects from that surgery. One of the more common presentations is abnormal uterine bleeding, which was the impetus for this review article. The authors identified 2,100 citations, of which they reviewed 200 full texts It included 60 studies. These studies are a mix of RCTs, prospective and retrospective cohorts, as well as case controls and case series. Overall, in the literature, AUB was pre- reported in approximately 25% of patients with a history of one previous cesarean delivery. For these patients, the average menstrual duration was longer, significantly longer, about 13.5 days with approximately six days of early to mid-cycle intermenstrual bleeding. Bleeding was often reported as brownish and dark red, seldomly as bright red vaginal bleeding. Bleeding was more common in scars that were larger and those with less amount of overlying myometrium, as well as those with vascularity noted on hysteroscopy or an ultrasound. Now, you may be wondering, why are cesarean scar defects associated with abnormal uterine bleeding? We think these defects are associated with AUB, because of either retention of menstrual blood in the defect, the trapping effect. There may be some fibrotic tissue that impairs appropriate drainage around that defect. There may be production of frank blood within the defect secondary to neovascularization, or it may just be localized inflammation or focal adenomyosis within the roof of that defect. The author's impetus for this article was really to highlight the idea that abnormal uterine bleeding the palm coin system that we're all familiar with from FIGO should really start to include cesarean scar defects as a distinct entity. And when you're evaluating a patient for AUB, thinking about their obstetric history and prior mode of delivery as a way of sorting out where the abnormal uterine bleeding is coming from. This article doesn't address treatments for abnormal uterine bleeding related with cesarean scar defects, be it hormonal therapies, excisional therapies, or revision surgeries. But I think nice counseling points here for patients and providers when we're seeing abnormal uterine bleeding in the setting of a cesarean scar defect.
3: Pietro, I think that's a really great point that this article makes about a C-section scar being a cause of abnormal uterine bleeding. And it's something that I've actually seen in my practice, not infrequently, that blood can collect in that seal, And I have one patient that I care for who this has plagued for years. And we tried everything after her second delivery from a Justin to a marina IUD. And she still had whatever menstrual blood there was, was being collected in that seal. And it really wasn't until she had surgery to close that seal and excise and repair her uterus that that abnormal bleeding stopped. And this was a patient who was no longer trying to get pregnant, but was really bothered by that persistent bleeding. And I, I do see this again and again. So I think that um, it, we may have to change it to palm Coin c or something like that and revamp the acronym.
1: Yeah, I know we don't talk a lot about treatment of cesarean scar defects, but I, I personally think that there's certainly a role for surgery for these defects to improve yeah. abnormal uterine bleeding, to improve um, implantation outcomes in women with recurrent implantation. Again, all of this is supported on loose data, certainly not prospective randomized data, Um, But one of the things I worry about, I'll just introduce it here to the podcast, is we have this defect in the myometrium that we know is associated with um, placenta spectrum disorder. Does our surgery to this defect from inside the uterus now, be it hysteroscopically or excision and revision from the outside, reduce the risk of placenta spectrum disorder? Does it modify it at all? Um, That's a question that's left unanswered for me, and I haven't seen any data about it yet. But again, I think this article is just a really nice counseling point, something that we manage as REIs, both in the infertile and um, non-infertile patients.
2: Pietro, you're thinking like a surgeon. We we found something wrong. It must be able to be fixed by surgery. So I just be careful, be cautious. It's really nice that we're characterizing that the, the, the bleeding is associated with the defect. That doesn't necessarily mean you can extrapolate that, that uh, a surgery will actually fix it, but
3: right. And I think you should try like anything, medical therapy prior to surgical therapy, menstrual suppression, hormone suppression, all of those things. And I think if, if those fail, then surgery can be thought of as a next step.
1: If you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Good point, Kurt. <laughs> So again, Eve, Kurt, thanks for a wonderful October rundown of the FNS issue coming out. And I just want to highlight again that by the time you're listening to this podcast, we'll be recording live from ASRM in Anaheim, California. We're going to have a host of content uh, live from the meeting, interviews. We're going to be talking to some people presenting prize papers, as well as some other thought leaders in our field. I know last year's podcast episode live from the meeting was immensely popular. We're hoping to expand on that and really generate some great content. Um, from both Eve, Kurt, myself, as well as other members of the FNS media team led by Dr. Michael Simoni, our executive producer, who's really
2: cheerleading this effort. Please stop by, say hello. Maybe we can get you on, on air, but be a part of the podcast.
3: Looking forward to seeing everyone in Anaheim.
2: The
1: conversation continues beyond this podcast. You can follow us on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn accounts to stay current with all of the good science that's coming out in FNS. But until we meet again, that's it for us. By Kurt. By Eve. See you all soon. Bye. And seen.
0: This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on air. Brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simoni and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.